You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Fay, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go, you can stand and shout your eureka, do whatever you like. You'll never forget the moment when lightning strikes. Hi, this is Gerald Runner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly mic drop moments that led you to becoming an artist. Actor musicians Van Hughes and Nick Blamire wrote and are performing in Space Dogs at MCC Theater. The new musical tells the heartbreaking mind-blowing true story of the first living beings to go into outer space, even before humans. The musical centers on the stray dog Laika and the top-secret Russian scientist who sent the sweet pup and other dogs to space during the Cold War. Space Dogs is now playing at MCC until March 20th. With me is Nick Blamire. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much, Gerald. It's an honor to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you. And congratulations. You've been extended and extended and extended. <laughs> Thank you. It's a, it's a real joy. You know, it's a, it's a dream to do theater in New York and off-Broadway especially. Uh, I think Broadway obviously has this kind of pinnacle attached to it. But I've always thought of of uh, of off Broadway as, as like the you know indie theater yes. and uh, seeing things like Floyd Collins or oh. you know, re- listening to cast recordings like uh, Assassins. Just I've always wanted to be a part of that, and uh, this is my first show uh, that I've written off Broadway, and and the fact that people are loving it is just you know it's just a, a dream come true. Yeah, and I love. MCC because they're risk takers. I know that their mantra isn't it isn't it that they want to inspire conversation and thought yes. and inspiration. Yeah, yeah, I I uh I'm I'm just such a big fan of them, have been for decade plus, and was just talking to Bernie Telsey, one of the artistic directors, and and he articulated uh exactly what you said and and that in a way he thinks of them and what he used to call uh, what he used to call MCC when they were just starting out was uh, kind of the Angelica of theater, uh, you know, the place that you go to see that indie idea that uh, 
you know, that no one else has the courage to take on. And I, I do think that film, you know, there's just so, there's so many spots where, where a movie can go and it's just not the same for theater. The real estate game is too hard. Um, so when anyone takes a chance on, uh, on something, I'm, I'm always in admiration of that. And so to be the beneficiary of that at a place I admire so much is just, I'm still pinching myself. It's incredible. So take me to your lightning strikes moment with space dogs. When did it happen? I, I heard that it started in, in a basement, in Van's basement. Or, <laughs> take me to how it all began. I will. Okay, great. So uh, my my best buddy, Van Hughes, who is uh, busy doing the uh, Almost Famous workshop right now during the day, um, uh. which is here right now, um, he, he and I have been artistic compatriots for, for almost a decade as well. And uh, he lives in Bushwick and has this this great little basement apartment. He rents out the top floor and you know has made a a, a nice little life for himself. Uh, minimalist Marie Kondo kind of vibes down down below, and uh, and I've watched him really invest and commit to uh, becoming a an, an audio artist. And he's become a, a, an incredible producer of music, and so he's got this, you know, desktop down there. And, and he's, we produced, uh, we've now produced, I think, four albums together down there. And so I go over there all the time. And in one of those trips, he mentioned that he was on this YouTube rabbit hole about Leica and the dogs that went into space, and that he was just like, I can't believe how disparate the information is that there's you know some publications that say one thing and another will say the exact opposite and the dates are all fudgy and yet there's this kind of central crazy absurd idea that that dogs would be the you know the first beings in space and it was absolutely uh i love the title of your show a lightning strike moment it was like oh that's a great idea for a show and we've been talking about making something together and had both expressed our frustration that, you know, the risk of making theater because of the real estate game I was, I was describing earlier and just, you know, what a risky financial proposition it continues to be. That really puts a damper on, on the kind of theater that gets major productions, uh, especially in New York. And I came, you know, came up dreaming about, theater companies like Malapart where Ethan Hawke and Jonathan Mark Sherman started and, you know, doing theater for a dollar in a, in a, a basement. Um, basements are very important to me. And so, uh, so this immediately felt like that. And it felt like, Oh, the absurdity of this story lends itself to the, an, an absurd telling of it, which would be, you know, directly in conflict with this idea that, you know, theater is expensive, so you have to keep the idea, you know, safe and commercial and linear and easily digestible. I think, you know, Van and I have both been in a bunch of um, Broadway shows that have, have lived by those rules. And uh, there have been blasts, but I do think we've been evolving towards a more abstract form uh, of, of storytelling. And this has just been that from day one. You know, what's fascinating is what multitaskers you are. I mean, you wrote 
the musical, you star in it, you play all the instruments, you move all the scenery, you <laughs> are puppeteers. I I heard that you said it's like a TED talk. I mean, yeah. it's 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 epic, you know, in scope. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about that choice of of you know telling it in this very unique way, telling the story in such a fascinating way? With stuffed animals, you fall in love with those dogs too. Oh. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm in love with them too. I mean, that's that's really the driving force is that we're both such animal lovers, and there's such a profound relationship there to be mined that I haven't really seen mined. And you know, I, I think the the decision to do it ourselves was partly practical in that you know any version of this that had a ten person cast immediately became harder to pull off. Yeah. Uh, also, there's just something about the fact that really the the crux of the the story is Van telling me what he was learning online and me doing my own research and being so fascinated by it. And because we were, you know, not setting out to write a commercial vehicle for ourselves, it was much more of a lark, and it it freed me up creatively to sort of think outside the box. Um, and that's been really a dictating principle is like, how can we stay immediate and intimate with this? Because the story is epic, right? The, right. the context is epic, the yeah. Cold War and, and, you know, what we're living through now with Russia exactly. and Ukraine only uh, oh. refracts the story further. It's, it's so heartbreaking and it's so, I mean, the, the treatment of the dogs is, is, too sad for words. Yes. So it actually it needs a counterbalance of joy and sort of uh, spontaneity that doing it all ourselves not only made it practically easier, but it 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 offered really interesting creative opportunities. You know, what if I play uh, an American leader and a Russian leader? You know, and a dog. And what if Van plays a scientist and a dog and a Russian leader and an American leader? And we do all of those in tandem and that, you know, it became this really fun game as we were, we were talking about the show, Van would say, you know, isn't it insane that X, Y, Z happened? And I would write down the cadence that he used in telling me whatever fact he told me. And so that became this real game of how can we really, you know, uh, preserve the enthusiasm that we had for discovering this story and, and give that to the audience. And also it's a love story. You know, when you think about the scientists, I don't know if you want me to give it away. The very, uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to, but you know, you really, you, it, there's a real dilemma he has yes. to send like uh, the other dogs to space, you know, cause he has such a, a deep connection to them and totally. we as the audience, if, here there's a stuffed animal and you're thinking, oh, oh, I care for you so much. Don't be, don't be hurt. Don't be, please come back. And so you can, mm -hmm. so you can live your life and be a hero and get that steak. <laughs> oh, Gerald, you're, you're, you're totally hitting me in the heart. I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the power of, you know, suspending disbelief we all know that it's a puppet, but because yeah. A, we have such a, we all have such a relationship to stuffed animals that's very childlike and, and primal. Uh, and B, we understand this telepathic relationship between animal and human so well 
that uh, that yeah, it, it is a love story, you know, between man and and dog, and and I do think that it's it's also a story about the tension between human progress and the costs of that progress, and the the you know the real conclusion that I've walked away from is that dogs kind of transcend humanity. There's something so pure about that love, and so unfettered by you know. Uh, recrimination or jealousy or uh, you know the the sort of uh, trappings of reason that come with the human brain and when we get the 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 chance to connect with the dog it sort of reframes everything it's like being in nature you know you just sort of start wondering well why was I so obsessed with my phone and what was happening with work and it, it, it just kind of makes it all feel much more ephemeral. And, uh, and I think the tension between that, because, you know, it's not to say that we're indicting progress. I think there's certainly yeah. something really quite miraculous about ex- exploring the stars and learning about uh, the context with which our planet sits in the larger system. But, uh, you know, there, there, is, there is a real tension between loving animals and then putting animals through something that they don't get to choose. Um, and, and it is, it is heartbreaking. So without spoiling too much, I, I do feel fascinated continually by that, that question. And I don't think it's, there's any easy answer to it, which is why it makes for good theater. And how did you get to the facts or how did Van, you know, go from a YouTube rabbit hole to really getting to the truth because as you, it's very murky and, and, you know, as a uh, Americans, we're probably, you know, who knows what, you know, really what, what happened, you know, in back then, oh. you know, in the height of the cold war, you know, how their space exploration program was happening. So how do you, how do you get those facts? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, especially because so much of it was classified until 2002. Yeah. So there's stuff that has come out only recently about the depth of the lies that Russia perpetrated to keep Laika's fate secret from society and the way they vaulted her heroism in the face of all of the things they were doing behind the scenes. And it really makes you kind of question all of history in a, in a certain way. It's like, what are we being told? And and yeah. what, what is the press release? And, you know, not to be a conspiracy theorist about it, cause that's, that's certainly not our goal, but I do, I do think that the, the research we've done has been really comprehensive. We've read a bunch of different books, some from the Russian side and some from the American side and been able to cross-reference dates and, you know, more than kind of passing judgment on either um, either faction, it's more just reporting what we know to be true, which is, you know, that Werner von Braun, uh, a, who was a, an aerospace engineer for the Nazis in World War II, was hired by uh, President Truman when we realized that we were losing the space race, even though he, President Truman himself had passed a law that said that hiring Nazis would be illegal after World War II. And that's just fact. So, you know, that right there is enough to mine. And a lot of what we're doing is is sort of putting pop idiom 
into yeah. these historical moments and and thinking, well, what must it have felt like to be in that moment? Um, because you know, at the end of the day, the the secrets and lies that the Cold War is made up of are are almost unknowable. And the thing that is really universal about that time is that we we were driven by this fear of each other and this hope of winning the world that is yeah. is so confounding to both Van and I and we we've been you know constantly fascinated by the kind of white maleness at the core of that that these like insecure white guys are you know needing needing to be the the number one for what exactly you know and then when you bring nuclear war into it and think about the precipice that that puts us all on it really shows you know the the poles of humanity that we can be that callous and and that uh confused as to the purpose of life um and then on the other side of it that we can have such a profound relationship with you know our pet yes yes and also the the show is equally or partially also about your journey to understand this, you know, yes. you're learning these facts. So it's really, as you say, it's such fascinating out of the box storytelling because you're talking about your education in, in this process of learning Thanks. it and that you're, and then, and then teaching it to us and yeah. And then um, all the, the technology, you know, the TV, and the, I, I just love all the, yeah. the details that you Thank have. You. Well, you know, I mean, we're fans. I think yeah. that's, that was a really helpful and kind of freeing action to mine because, you know, when you're making something, especially an original show that, that isn't based on some famous movie or book, um, there's, there's a sense that, you worry about if it's good enough, you know, the whole time. And we were really freed from that because we were, we, the story is interesting no matter how you render it. Yeah. And that really allowed us to be, to, to follow our instincts about how we rendered it. And we love theater and love theatricality. And there's something so inherently theatrical. Van always says this about space that, you know, the idea of being pulled from your naturalistic, you know, gravitationally bound self and brought to the stars is something that only a, a theater can really pull off. Even a movie, you you know, it's a screen, but there's a three dimensionality to what's possible in a theater. And and I've had some of the most affecting, inspiring moments in my whole life inside of theaters. So to get the opportunity to bring everyone to a theater, especially after the the pandemic that we've all been um, living through and the amount of theater we've been deprived of because of it, the chance to be one of the first shows back, we were just like, we got to give them a show. You know, we got to give you all something to, to really sink your teeth into. Because the other thing is that, you know, New York City is just full of some of the most intelligent discerning and uh fascinating people in the world and and we wanted to uh to live up to you know that kind of quality of audience and that meant 
doing things that that neither of us had seen before that we didn't know were going to work or not. But uh, but to constantly be turning that dial and challenging ourselves to visualize this story in in more and more creative ways. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talking about your experiences with theater, you have so many incredible credits. You know, I think about just Tick, Tick, Boom and uh, Found. I love that music, that show oh hunter bell show just so many shows you you've performed in you've written um so when was your lightning strikes moment or or can you talk about a few of them when you knew you had to be an artist that this was your path oh yeah i mean i really appreciate the question it's a it's a a lovely feeling to to look back at that because i do kind of have trouble believing the life I'm getting to live. I mean, it, it those tick, tick, boom and, and found and, uh, dog fight, glory days and, and baby. And, and these, these shows I've gotten to be a part of Godspell. They are, they are things that I would have been a fan of, you know, had I not been in them and I was a fan of and still am, but I got to be there on the inside of it. And, I, I think really what it, it comes down to is that when I was like three years old, I did a, uh, a, a piece called The Homework Machine at a, like a after school drama program with a, a great man named Tim Reagan, who was so clear and instilled in, in, with, in, with such effortless ease, the idea of community and creativity being inextricably linked. And that when you make something creative, you are inviting people into your world and you are making us feel less alone. And, and as an artist, you're becoming less alone because you've sent out that invitation. And I remember feeling that. Um, and I felt that so many times over the years. And I really have been addicted to that feeling. And, uh, and I ended up, I, I had a, a, a very kind of boilerplate nerdy kid middle school experience where I was bullied and, and didn't quite know how to fit in and uh, changed schools except in seventh grade because Tim Reagan, that same man, moved to a drama school in the area and started teaching middle school drama. And so I thought, okay, well, this is a safe guy. I'm going to go, you know, continue to learn from him. And because I went to uh, to that middle school, Sidwell Friends is what it's called in Washington, D.C., oh. where I grew Yes. Yeah, it's a great school. And great school. It was uh, Chelsea Clinton was there when I was there. It was like a 
just like, okay, whoa, this is a different, you know, swath of society that I, I hadn't experienced. And, and the, the level of, of artistry and passion from the people that I was around, it just kept giving steroids to my interest. And in seventh grade, I remember being in Tim's class and Sarah Gray uh, walked in with a tape, cassette tape of Rent and played me December 24th, 9 p.m. And that was the only uh, piece of the show that I knew for like at, le at least a couple of years because my parents weren't sure, you know, if the cursing and, and all the sex and drugs were going to be okay for their seventh grader. But by the time I saw that show in, you know, sophomore year of, of high school, it, it, it flipped the script once again, you know, it was like, okay, so I've seen Phantom of the Opera and I've seen Les Mis and there's, you know, such an epic size and imagination to those shows and a real maximalist feel that I think Space Dogs is, is certainly paying homage to. Um, and Tommy and Jesus Christ Superstar and big shows like that. But then you have this other thing in Rent where it feels like it's being made by a group of friends and it feels incredibly intimate, even though it's taking on, you know, Lava M. And I started seeking out shows that were smaller in, in that way that, you know, something that was producible, that was uh, small in stature, but big in theme. And uh, that's when I started finding stuff like Sunday in the Park with George and Assassins and, and Floyd Collins and Tick, Tick, mm -hmm. Boom and driving around listening to Tick, Tick, Boom and thinking, you know, I'm having so many of these thoughts. Oh. This man is speaking, you know, for, for so many artists in the same way that Lapine and Sondheim do uh, with George. It just, okay. they're mapping the artistic process almost in like a kind of coded how-to book. Yes. Uh, you know, how do you deal with the loneliness or the uncertainty that come with living in your imagination and then, and then having to kind of bring that, you know, into real life and deal with the, the business and all of the disappointments that, that come with trying to get people to appreciate what you appreciate. Um, and so I, I just have continued to feel buoyed by art uh, whenever I get you know, when I have moments of des uh, desperation or despair about humanity and, and the, the way the world is going, it's art that reframes that into hope yes. and, uh, mm. and gives me, you know, a, another kind of dose of the, of the reason why it's worth continuing on whatever path we're on. And I, I just, I keep getting use of that even even in disappointment because uh, i i wrote this show glory days that yeah. uh, is uh is a small musical about you know the the kind of path pathway between boyhood and, and manhood that liminal space and and the toxicity of of being taught to be a man by other boys who are also you know regurgitating toxic ideas and, and trying to find true love and kinship um there are some, some big ideas that, that drove the writing of that show. And then the success of that show uh, in DC uh, brought it to New York too soon. And then we closed on opening night. And so I watched that kind of dream. On Broadway, right? On Broadway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. And you said you watched, yeah. I just watched that dream bubble kind of pop. 
And, uh, you know, now I'm 37, I was 23 at the time. Um, I'm, I, I couldn't be more grateful for that kind of public failure because not only did it teach me that failure doesn't kill you, but I got a crash course in Broadway. I got a crash course in writing a musical with some of the smartest people around mm -hmm. me teaching me. And, uh, and I, I also kind of understood the long game because that show didn't define my life and it didn't, um, it, my life didn't stop. You know, I, I, if anything, it allowed me and opened the door for me to have the kind of career that I've jumped yeah. about, warts and all, you know? And isn't that, isn't that show performed all over the country? There's been like 50 productions of it. So it's had it's, a life way really, beyond Broadway. Yeah. You know, people dream of that, you know, it's getting a, their work. No, oh, totally. It's a, it's a dream. It, it, yeah. it was a dream come true and a, a box checked. And uh, and we just had a production during the pandemic in Japan, <gasps> our second production in Japan. And like just gorgeous work being done by people who, you know, look at the show through with an entirely different language and culture and finding something human in it. And that to me, you know, it just speaking of, as I was saying about dogs, that there's kind of a purity that transcends our selfishness or our violence. There's something about the true purpose of theater in terms of that connectivity that transcends modern ideals of success, you know, and it, it allows me to realize that, you know, being Tom Cruise or Steven Sondheim or Steven Spielberg or any of these kind of luminaries that sit at the top of their field is just not the only way to have a fulfilling creative life. Yes. I hear you. Well, how did you go from Sidwell Friends to working professionally? What was, was it Cryberry, Crybaby, one of your first professional yeah. jobs? How did you I mean, go from there to there? I appreciate it. I mean, yeah. I, I um, okay, so I graduated high school in 2002 and I wrote a musical in my senior year uh, called When I Grow Up that was a one-man musical. Apparently, I'm, I'm into this small thing. And, uh, and when I was doing that, I got waitlisted at the University of Michigan because my hero, Gavin Creel, had gone there. Gavin. And one of the best oh, humans alive. So wonderful. Oh. He just came to the show the other day, didn't, didn't warn me. <laughs> and I saw him in the audience and was like, oh my God, now I have to really watch my pitch. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but my best friend, Brian, also went to Michigan. And he was a freshman when I was a senior in high school. And I went out and, uh, and visited him and just thought it was the most nurturing place and uh, applied and, and didn't get in and it got waitlisted and wrote an impassioned plea and sent a, a copy of my one man musical to say, you know, I'm, 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 I, I'm an artist in all kinds of ways. And I, I want to, I want to make work and I'm not just here to, you know, uh, take the, the pill, the Broadway pill and, and, you know, stand in, in line. I want to do something different. And I, I urge anybody who's listening to take those kinds of steps because it does end up, it does end up differentiating you in a way. And I, I ended up getting off the wait list and going to Michigan kind of before it had exploded in the way it has now. It's now you say Michigan and people almost roll their eyes because of shows like Mean Girls where like every single, you know, actor in it, it went to Michigan. 
but uh, it was a beautiful place to be. And it was there that I met Benj Pasek. And Benj, ah. we were behind me in school. And we started having deep convos about the nature of theater and what kind of stuff we thought was possible. And he wrote a song cycle m- my junior year called Edges that was uh, – it was like something of a, a little – success and we did a little tour of it and we ended up doing it at Joe's pub um right before I graduated and I had met I met everyone at that that first reading including my now wife Anna Nogueda who was Benj's best friend uh from uh, and so I really owe Benj world. it's a very small world and it was then that I sort of felt like oh this is approachable like I see these people and I, the, 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 I saw their faces on playbill.com and in programs and now they're around and they're just people and they're just trying to figure it out too. And, um, suddenly I felt like I, I kind of, not that I knew how to navigate because it's a moving target and a rolling ball, but I, I knew that I wanted to make new work in the way that I had just made new work with Benj and so I did a concert of, uh, of Glory Days at Joe's Pub and started auditioning and got very lucky. I got the, the tour of Alter Boys um, out of school and was able to go play the, the Jewish member of that Christian boy band on the road. Um, and then while I was on the road, I, I did a, a reading of Crybaby and then you know got lucky enough that that reading turned into a production and, and moved out to La Jolla. And while we were in La Jolla... Glory Days got announced at Signature Theater. And so suddenly it, there were all of these dreams coming true at once. And they really collided uh, because while Crybaby was in previews, Glory Days got announced for Broadway. And so I had to ask Rob Ashford and Mark Brokaw, the director and a choreographer and director, if I could have some time off to go write my Broadway show. And they were so gracious to do that. Um, and it, you know, it was a it was a real trial by fire. And I think, e- even though Crybaby wasn't a successful Broadway show and Glory Days wasn't either, I I had ha- had made the leap, and it suddenly felt like, you know, th- this thing of, of risking uh, pain for the transcendence on the other side of of the fear of pain. You know, it became it became clearly worth it to me, um, and I just I just have never stopped. And you know, it, in some ways, I I've had to pull myself back a little bit because I think in my twenties I was a bit of a workaholic, and I I remember I wrote a show called A Little More Alive that um, we I was in California doing a reading of that right around my twenty eighth birthday, and it was kind of that Saturn Returns tick, tick, boom, uh, what's going to happen when I turn 30 thing that everybody has. But mine was centered around this, this show a little more alive. And I remember when we got the investment, we got $500,000 in, in one day and I had heart palpitations. And uh, I was lying down on, on the bed in the hotel where I was staying with, with um, Anna, who is not my wife yet at that point. And I could just feel that my sense of self had gotten really wrapped up in 
my employment and my art making in a way that wasn't quite healthy. Um, and so I really, I really had to kind of actively pull myself back and, and think about, okay, you know, I want to, I want to do this forever. Um, but I also want to be able to do this forever and, and sustain myself and not live and die by every, you know, yes or no. And it was a good, it was a good lesson because that, that show didn't come to New York, but it was a great experience. And we got to do it a bunch of other places, Williamstown and, uh, and Barrington stage. And, and that's where I met Van and Van and I became buddies. And that's, it's a, it's a circuitous line, but there's a straight line in there. somewhere. That's incredible. I just think about your route to the University of Michigan and, and you were writing that show. When did you know that you could write, that you had those skits? What, what was one of the first things you wrote? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, I wrote a song uh, about my high school crush and it was the first line was save me the time, please just answer your phone. Can you read my mind, please? Like you would just know. And the, the hook was like, cause I'm back in fifth grade with a song in my heart and a girl stuck to my name, to my brain, stuck to my brain. And I, I just remember writing that song and being like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. Like I'm coming in, in the middle of a situation and I'm in the point of view of a character and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be good. I'm just being sort of, I'm just following the instinct and putting, laying it down. And my friends reacted, you know, in a way that was like, Oh, this is, well, if you say this is a song then this is a song. And I really caught the bug and, and felt, more than anything, I mean, I, I, I would say I haven't, I, I'm still on the search for like, am I really a songwriter? Am I really an actor? Like, I don't know what the line is that you cross that where that becomes true or not. But I, I, I know that the exploration of it uh, is too interesting not to try. And I've written so many bad songs and I've written a bunch of songs that I really feel like encapsulate my perspective. And with Space Dogs, it, it's been even more interesting because that's obviously not a story that is my own experience. Um, but I've been able to find my own personal sort of fingerprint within it. And as you say, uh, so kindly sort of chart our creative journey in writing the show through the plot of this scientists and this dog, which is, is, you know, is an homage to Sunday and tick, tick, boom, and anything that is sort of trying to, uh, shine light on what it means to create something, um, the value and the, the fear and the wonder attached. And I'm so fascinated here. You were as a kid listening to rent, being enchanted by it. And then you get to play Jonathan Larson. What was that like when you got cast? I saw it. It was a beautiful production. You know, I remember it so uh, at how poignant it was and heartbreaking and, and rich and devastating and also funny. And um, what, what was that like when you got the call or the email? 
that you were cast? Oh man. I mean, you know, I'm not a good auditioner. I, I have a lot of trouble not wanting things, you know, and, and thinking about wanting it when I'm going through it. And so that's kept me from getting certain parts that, you know, other people or like even the creative team thought I was right for. Cause I, I can, I can get my own way as any actor can. And, and it's been a challenge, uh, that I've, you know, ho- hopefully gotten better at over the years, but because I had been toiling away for a while, and this is something that I, I just, I would again, like offer to your listeners and, and, um, anybody who's trying to figure out, you know, where's the rhythm or rhyme or reason to any of, of, you know, which jobs you get and which jobs you don't, I think staying and lasting is a huge thing because when I got tick, tick, boom, I was 31 and I had been in the business for eight years and had been doing, you know, small new musicals that whole time. And I'd been doing any concert anyone asked me to do. And I'd been a fan of the, of Keen Company and had seen their shows and would go to anything that I could, that felt like it fit this, this kind of uh, theater making that I was interested in. And so I actually got, I was in North Carolina teaching at a wonderful program called the performing arts project. And the, yes. I was, I, do you know that program? I've been there. You have? <laughs> I went to visit. Yes. Oh my God. Isn't it's, it the it's the best, 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 best. I love, oh, love Juliet. Yes. 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 Oh. Uh, so slight digression. I've known Juliet since I was 15, 14. Oh. She used to run a program called the Broadway Theater Project with Anne Ranking, rest in peace. Um, and that was down in Tampa, Florida. And when Anne decided she wasn't going to run the program anymore, it changed into the Performing Arts Project and moved to Winston-Salem, where Jonathan Bernstein yes. uh, now runs it. And so I, I've just continue to stay totally in love with those people and, and their education system. And so I was down there teaching and I got a call from my agent at the time who was just like, I think you just got an offer to play Jonathan in the Tick, Tick, Boom revival. <laughs> um, and I'd never met Jonathan Silverstein, a different Jonathan who runs the Keen Company, but I knew who he was because he had directed the Marry Me a Little revival um, and with uh, Jason Tam and Lauren Molina. And I remember loving that and thinking, God, he does a lot with a little. And he, man, he did that production of Tick, Tick, Boom had like three props. And we were in, you know, 20 rooms in that show. But there was no set. It was a piano and a couch and some lights above. And, you know, I I had done Godspell with George Salazar, who is just one of my great friends to this day. And, and Lily Cooper, I love so much. And Sierra Renee, so talented and incredible. And, and it was just like, is this really happening? Am I really getting to do this? And, you know, Jonathan, to his great credit, was really hard on me because I came in and I think partially because I was a nerdy kid, I, I can sometimes put up a wall between myself and the vulnerability of a character. It's sort of a a tricky navigation for all artists, you know, not to want to look like it's all easy. 
um, and to really expose the work that a character is doing, not an actor, but the character is doing and the anxieties that a character is going through, especially someone like Jonathan, who is like a live wire and holding on by a thread uh, to this kind of self-perception um, of where he's supposed to be by 30, you know, it, I, I didn't quite want to go there. Um, and I think part of it was because I had been burned by Broadway with, with glory days and I had some stuff to work through and, and Jonathan just kept asking me, he's like, you know, you just said this line in David Auburn's script that just feels far more intense than you seem to feel about it. And why is that, you know, and, and are you going to, are you going to dig into what, what that line would mean if you were saying it? Because there's so many, I, I, there's so many life experience parallels that I, I share with Jonathan in, in being somebody who, you know, wanted to do this early and wanted to do this on a, on a big scale. And obviously Jonathan is one of the, one of the great heroes of our, of our art. So I'm not comparing us in terms of ability. And he also tragically passed away way before his time and, and didn't even get to see what he, what he did to all of us. And, and, you know, who knows what he would have continued to do to all of us. And I'm thrilled that Andrew Garfield has made such a splash with the Netflix movie. So more people are getting that story. But for me, it was a real, it was a real uh, sea change moment where I realized, okay, I, I can't play it safe. You know, this is why acting is hard is that you, it does have to cost you something. And, uh, and it, you have to go out there and, and connect your, your darkest fears to, you know, uh, lines that you didn't write for a bunch of people that you don't know. Um, and in doing that, it was, just completely cathartic. It was therapy. And, and it was also right in the middle of Trump getting elected. And so the context for the show and seeing lines like, what does it take to wake up a generation, you know, on the night that Trump got elected uh, to an audience that was crying with us, you know, it was like, this is what I moved to New York to do is to speak truth to power and to galvanize support you know, in our culture to withstand the tremors that come with change. And, uh, and it, it just, it was just a totally magical experience from start to finish. And I will be forever grateful for it. How extraordinary. And another kind of surreal kind of kismet moment. I love that your wife is also <laughs> part of the MCC season, right? Her play yes. Is opening next month, right across the yes. hall in the theater yes. next door to yours. Yes, it is. She starts rehearsal on Monday, and uh, her play is called "Which Way to the Stage." They actually just changed the title, and it's I, I love it. Um, and it's about two uh, people standing outside the stage door waiting to get Adina Menzel's autograph in 2015 when she's doing "If Then" on Broadway. And I remember reading the first scene from the show, from her play, and just thinking it was so funny, but that like, could, are plays allowed to do this? You know, she just is, it's, I've, I've read nothing like it in my life. And it starts out so light and bantery, and then becomes this deep examination of 
gender and the roles we play in society and success and failure and what you owe a friend. And I, I just kind of can't believe the play exists. I I'm a deep admirer of, of Anna's work aside from, from loving her as a person. I mean, I guess those are connected, but, <laughs> but there is a, it, there is just so much going on in that play that I think is valuable. And, and, and for this moment, especially, and her play actually got booked at MCC first and when I was um, trying to find a place to, to to get space dogs, you know, I didn't want to horn in on her experience. And she was really magnanimous when we found out that that MCC was looking for a small musical. I was like, "Are you okay with me?" You know, kind of throwing my hat into the ring for this. And you know, very thankfully, she she was like, "You know, this is if that happened, that would be the craziest." to use your word kismet and uh and what ended up happening was march 9th 2020 we did a reading of space dogs that anna was uh at with me and when we got home like three hours later my agent called and said that they wanted to do the show it was the first time that that's ever happened like the day of the reading and we celebrated in the street danced danced down court street in brooklyn and then, you know, three days later, the whole world shut down. And so I, uh, I have been in this relationship with MCC for three-ish years now and alongside my wife, you know, dealing with the ins and outs of trying to get a, a play up, you know, when everyone's wearing masks and taking tests three times a week. And the fact that we'll be running while she's in rehearsal, it's just like, it's like a dream that I, you know, would feel crazy to actually have dreamt before it, it happened. Um, because I just, I know, I know how hard it is to get anything produced. I mean, between glory days and, um, and space dogs, I tried to get all my other shows to New York, but it just, there was a, a, a wall up, you know? And so the fact that we both, have had this happen. It's just, um, it's not something that, that either of us are taking for granted. And that's for sure. What's so wonderful is that you both have taken agency over your work. I mean, you're both actors, performers, you sing, you're also writing your own material, which is really extraordinary. Thank you. Yeah, you're I do think it's, I do think it's important actually. And I, I hope more artists allow themselves to broaden their, scope of artistry because it, it's not to say that that you know being an interpreter um and and just being an actor isn't valid because of course it is but as a business practice it's it's passive slightly it's you have to wait for the door to be opened for you and there's so much psychologically that is painful about the amount of rejection that that comes up that it starts to equate, you know, I'm only being creative when I go into an audition to ask somebody for a job. And that's what, what always tripped me up, when, you know, whenever I've gone into an audition and, and self-tapes, you know, don't help any, yeah. any more, uh, any more than that. So for me it, and for Anna, I think writing has been a coping mechanism. It's been a way to, to borrow Joan Didion's phrase, acting and writing is the same muscle writing you just get to do alone. And I, I just think that's so true. And 
it has been the saving grace of my, it's, it's allowed me to be an actor because I can practice my creativity whenever I want. And, you know, whether that means being a painter or a teacher or a dancer or a, you know, just like a bird watcher, but you pick a, you pick a hobby and you give it weight and, and focus in your life to become, you know, better at it. I think that, that acts as a balancing of the scales a little bit. And it, it takes away this feeling of, you know, when is it going to happen for me? Because, you know, whether or not space dogs got, um, produced in, in New York city, we were going to do it somewhere, even if it was in a 90 seat theater for, you know, whatever advertising we could scrounge. And it's the same for which way to the stage. I think that there is, there's just a, a different kind of drive when what you're, well, actually to use another quote that I love, uh, John Malkovich has this, this beautiful soliloquy that he gave about the difference between ambition and drive and that ambition is all about outward success and external, you know, the way that you seem to other people and, and the things that you get that everyone knows about. And drive is about going down and digging in and exploring. And I was really embarrassed when I read that because I think a lot of my twenties were wrapped up in ambition and that what, you know, as, as I think we all know, life throws curveballs, and yet somehow they feel like just what you needed on some level and, and they can, they can unwrap their, their meaning to you later when it doesn't feel good in the moment, but then, you know, you end up learning something from it. And that speaks to the resilience of humanity and our, and our ability to, you know, make meaning out of anything, I guess. But there is a, a sense of, you know, I needed to fail the way that I did uh, in order to become an artist that I could actually be proud of um, and to trade my ambition for drive. And that in so many ways, that's why Space Dogs got promoted, uh, got produced because I wasn't thinking about producing it. I was thinking about exploring. And then my my voice came out truthfully and i wasn't i wasn't marketing myself you know in my creative work um and obviously we have to be our own producers as as artists and that's that's just totally part of the game especially in new york but the balance and the ratio is really important and to me being a writer consistently keeps me in my creative head um, as opposed to my, you know, what have you done for me lately, Ed? Yeah. Well, here's to more drive. <laughs> Thank you. Such a yeah. treat to have you on. Thank oh. you so much. My pleasure. It still happens every day when lightning strikes. It's the moment you know. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore, and the talent was booked by Anna Strauss. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.